So I want to just give you a heads up before we even jump into an introductory story or we read through the text. I, I want to just let you know today uh, where we're going to head. And then when we finish, we're going to look back and do a little bit of an overview. But today there's a, a great commission theme to the text that we'll be in. We're going to look at Luke 9, 1 through 17, so you can begin turning there. And if I were to, to give this sermon a title today, in short, it would be, We Are His Sent Out Disciples. Now, we're going to have three different sections that we're walking through. As you're turning there, you'll notice we have Jesus sending out the 12 in verses 1 through 6. And then we return to the 12 in verses 10 through 17. And there's a few verses there in the middle where we hear about this man named Herod. And so... Not only are we his sent out disciples, but if you were to have a little subheading, because we're covering 17 verses to to make sure we cover all the bases where we're going to be today, a little subheading in italics, uh, we would also say that we're not only his sent out disciples, but we're sent out with power, we're sent out with a purpose, and we're sent out with his provisions. So in in the first part, we're going to talk about Jesus sending out the 12, there in the middle, we, we, we hear about this man named Herod. He hears about what's going on and he's perplexed. And then we close with a, mir- a miracle of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. And so today, this is not only about the Lord providing bread for this large crowd. I want you to even now, before we, we go anywhere else, be thinking about this throughout our time together today, that he's called us to come on mission with him to get the gospel from right where we are to the ends of the earth, and he's going to provide what we need in order to accomplish that task. Yes, we see a miracle where Jesus provides bread, but this is way more than a story simply about bread. So I'll go ahead and start off with, with two stories I'd like to share uh, one is about physical bread. There's a man named George Mueller. He's known for a lot of things, but one of them is his care for orphans. And again, this brother, we could share story upon story about him. Many of you likely have heard of him. But there's a really well-known story where on one particular day, at one particular orphanage, there were 300 children, and it was time for breakfast, but there was no food. Now, George Mueller never solicited for funds. The Lord always did provide, and this is tying into our theme today of God's providing power. But on this particular day, there was no food prepared for the children. But he sat them down and he prayed anyway and he waited. And as the story goes, the local baker brought bread and the kids had food to eat that morning. And shortly after, the milkman broke down nearby and then he offered the milk that he had to George Mueller for those children as well. Now, I I share that story because I do think it does show God's providing power for his people when they're on mission to meet needs. But this, again, isn't about bread alone. So I have another story I'd like to share with you. Uh, If there's any youth in the room, about a month ago I shared this on a Sunday night. If any of you have heard anything about modern-day missions and some of the great names, there are a group of five men that I want to tell you a short story about before we jump into our text. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Pete McCauley, and Ed Fleming. Five missionaries that went down to South America to spread the good news of Jesus. They heard about a tribe, the Waodani, a savage group of people who were known for their brutal attacks on one another. Six out of ten of the adult men died due to homicide, being killed by these neighboring tribes. 
these five brothers, as well as their families, set out to not only share the good news, they first had to make contact with them. This was a very remote people. And to, to fast forward the story a little bit, after multiple flights over the jungle, eliminating certain sectors of the jungle, they finally spotted the first Waudani people. Eventually, they determined that it was time to land that plane that had flown over so many times and dropped off gifts. It was time to land that plane on a small sandbar along the river there and go seek to make contact in hopes to spread the good news of Jesus to these people. And so they did. There's pictures and videos. There's great books out there you can read on this. It's encouraged my heart tremendously over the years. But the story has a unique turn. Even though their initial contact was, was good, shortly after these five men were killed by these tribal people. And if the story stopped there, it'd be pretty tragic. A lot of people, even knowing the rest of the story, say it would be a waste of life. I would disagree. Family members of these killed men, specifically some of their wives, went back to this same tribal group and continued on what these men had started, shared the good news of Jesus, and many have come to know Christ. Now, before you think that, well, Taylor shared the story about George Mueller, that's going to fit really well with the feeding of the 5,000, and he shared the story about the Waudani people because that's about people sent on mission. Although that is true, both of these stories speak into both aspects. George Mueller was on mission right where he was. He didn't go to the jungles of Ecuador, but he saw a need right where he was, and he sought to meet it taking care of those orphans. And not only were those five men, including their wives and some of their children, on mission, realizing they've been sent out to carry the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, they too were greatly provided for. Again, if you were to read more of their story, you could see more about those provisions. But this group, these men, these women, had provision of the faith to go and proclaim the good news. The heart to forgive after their husbands had been murdered and not only the ability to forgive, but to go back. These women went in. They were the initiators after these brutal murders. They went back in and led the way to continue sharing the good news. They were provided with medicine and supplies and prayers over the years. And so I start with those two stories, and now we'll jump into the text. Three separate scenes. The first one we're going to look at is Jesus sending out the twelve. So if you would turn to Luke 9, verse 1. I'll read 1 through 6. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 6, I love this, simple obedience. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So if you were to give this section a little bit of a title, it would be, We Are His Sent Out People with Power and a Purpose. That's almost the exact same heading as the title. So Jesus, he has been training up these 12. He's called them to himself. He's been training them up on his journey to Jerusalem, as I was helpfully reminded of today. Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem, and he's invited these brothers into the work that he's a part of. He's training them up. 
for ministry. He's not going to be around forever in bodily form. And he's training this up for this mission that he's been on. We don't need to look back further than chapter 8 to see that Jesus himself has been doing exactly what he just called them to do. To go proclaim the kingdom of God, to cure illnesses, and to cast out demons. You can see all three of those just in chapter 8. So he's been training this up, and and if you were to do a quick overview and read through Luke 1-1 up to Luke 8 and the end of that, the, the disciples have been watching and learning. They've been in the classroom. They've got to witness a lot of what he's been doing, but they haven't been sent out yet. And here is where it happens. Getting kicked out of the nest, so to speak. Getting out of the classroom. Getting some hands-on training. Now, he doesn't just say, go and try to do what I've been doing. He gives them his power and authority to go and do this. They can't do this without that power and authority. And he then gives them some instructions. We won't spend a lot of time there on those instructions, but he basically says, pack light, don't bounce around from house to house when you get there, and not if, but when they don't accept you. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them, and then they go. Now, we could spend a little bit more time there, but I think there's two things we can point out with that packing list and those instructions that he gives. This is an urgent task, and pack light. And that's still the same message we have today of the urgency to get the gospel from here to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't think that the packing list quite fits today. This was describing for that particular time, for those men, how he wanted them to go. But I, I do want to emphasize they're already starting to see, we're starting to see themes of dependence upon the Lord for the provisions to complete the task that he's called them to. By not taking extra food and tunics and money, they're going to have to rely on the Lord's provision. Now, yes, they're, they're leaning on and hoping for the hospitality of the people that they go to, but ultimately it's going to be the Lord that provides. And then again in verse 6, simple obedience. If there were questions, we don't see them. If there was a pause before they go, we don't see that. It says that they go and they proclaim and they heal. So you might be asking, okay, well, that's, that's awesome. First part of the story, well, what does that have to do with me? And I would say three questions that we can ask. The first one is, are we called to go and do the same thing? And I would say absolutely. This isn't just a story from old that we can be encouraged by. This is how Jesus sought to get the gospel from where they were to the ends of the earth. He's called people to himself. He's given them power and authority to go out and to proclaim the kingdom of God, and that still applies to us today. If you were here at the evangelism conference earlier um, in the fall, we talked about evangelism as exiles, a, a new book that's out. We focused in on 1 Peter 2, and one verse in particular talked about how we as his royal priesthood, his chosen people, his possession, we are called to go and proclaim his excellencies. How we've been brought out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the marvelous light. And then we went through each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we looked at what we would call great commission passages. And we also looked at a verse from Acts chapter 1. So I want to take one of those great commission passages that you've probably heard time and time again, and I hope this serves as a good reminder And I also want to look at Acts 1. So you can turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, or listen in. So this is after Christ's death, burial, resurrection. Here are his words in Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Two things there. Jesus is leaving the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that's how his people are empowered today. Also, he says that you are to share the good news in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Not just to the ends of the earth, but right where you are. And if you would, you can turn to Matthew chapter 28, one of the classic texts when we begin to talk about missions in the Great Commission, although it is all throughout God's word. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, reading through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, listen to this word, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then he gives instructions here to us as well. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so I hope that we can see answering that first question, does this apply to us today? Absolutely. We too have been given power as believers in Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power, the authority of God's word. And we too have been given a purpose and instructions. And that's to take the gospel from here to the nations. And there's specifics there as well. Now we have the beauty of the church and the church family to send out to go to the nations. Okay, so that's the first question. Second question is, well, what if we don't do it? I started reading a book recently called Finish the Mission, and it's on getting the gospel to the unreached and unengaged people groups around the world. And I would highly encourage you, if you have some time over the Thanksgiving or Christmas break, to read that book. I haven't finished it yet, but there's one part in particular where they ask this question. But wait a second, what about the innocent man in the tribe up on the mountaintops who's never heard of the gospel? What about him? What's his eternal destiny? He's never heard the gospel. What about that innocent man? And so that I don't cause anyone to squirm in their seats and miss the point of this, there is no innocent man anywhere on the face of the earth. So in that book, I, I almost fell out of my seat when they said, well, then that man would go to heaven. And I was like, oh, I'm not finishing this book. This is, this is not biblically sound. But they were trying to make a point. There is no innocent man here in America, in Africa, in Asia, in any tribal group. Every one of us is sinful. We've fallen short of the glory of God due to our sin nature. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the next section. But there is no innocent man. So those that don't hear the gospel, no matter how remote they are, the only way to the Father is through the Son. And if they don't hear about the Son, they won't be able to get to the Father. Which brings us to Romans. If you would, another classic text. We're going to turn to Romans 10. I would imagine almost every one of us have heard this before. I know I need to be reminded Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. To get the gospel from here to the ends of the earth, we have to go out and preach the good news of Jesus. And I don't mean that every single one of us has to go to a remote tribe like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those other men. We have great examples like George Mueller who saw a need right where he was and sought to meet it. Remember Acts 1-8? The Jerusalem area was right where they were. Jerusalem, then Judea a little further out, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. Our part of the Great Commission might not all look the same, and it shouldn't. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. One body, many parts, using their gifts and talents and skills and passions to serve and build up the body and complete this mission and this task that the Lord has called us to. So the only question I think that remains is, will we obey? Verse 6, and they went. And they did exactly what Jesus had just called them to. And that's what I'd like to just encourage all of us. I thought about walking down the stairs and sitting in the chairs, but that would waste a little time. I'm not just speaking to you. I'm speaking to myself as well. What are we going to do about it? What is our part? Some of you likely already a part of Great Commission work. Praise God. Some of you are still thinking about what that might look for you, will look like for you in this current season of life as a single, as a married, uh, as a new parent, as a, uh, someone who's getting close to retirement or retired. But what, what's your part going to look like? And, and I want to make sure that people understand, again, this is not me trying to strong arm people or guilt trip people into going overseas for the rest of their lives as missionaries. That's not what everyone's called to do. But we are all called to be a part in some way, shape, form, or fashion of the Great Commission. I was sitting down with a brother uh, in our church family earlier uh, this week talking about this very thing. There's lots of ways. Prayer, giving, going, mobilizing, or, or sending, or even looking for the nations who have come to us. Pray, give, go, send, seek out the nations right here before you. There's lots of different ways to get involved. And from that book, I want to read a quote, and then we'll move on to our, our next scene David Platt wrote one of the chapters in this book, and this particular section was called An Urgent Mission. Surely this God warrants more than our raising a hand and praying a prayer. Surely this God warrants more than nominal adherence, church attendance, or casual acceptance. This God warrants complete abandonment of our plans, our possessions, our hopes, our dreams, and our lives. We lay everything we have on the table before this God and we say, use me, my life, my family, my church, everything I have and everything I am for the spread of your glory and this gospel to the ends of the earth. Indeed, the only logical response to this glorious God of grace is, here I am, send me. And so I just, again, if you haven't thought about what your part or what your role is in the Great Commission, I would encourage you to write that down, think through that, pray over that with your spouse, a roommate, a friend in the days ahead, over the Thanksgiving break, the Christmas break. What does your role look like in being a part of this? College students, I'm not trying to pick on you. I do want to share this, though. Several times this came to mind. At the church I was a part of before moving to Ohio, the pastor would always say, hey, college students, have you ever thought about tithing the first part of your career? considering the first year, two, three maybe, before you launch into your career here in the States, potentially, if that's where you feel the Lord's led you? Have you considered going to spend a year or two on the mission field to go and serve, to use your skills and talents, and maybe even your degree to be a part of mission work in another country? To consider maybe whether the Lord would have you there more long-term, or with the idea that you go, learn, come alongside a missionary family, come back and light a fire in the church that you're going to be a part of and get to share your experiences from there, maybe take teams back there in the years ahead. 
that's not the only group I want to challenge in here. I want to challenge each and every one of us just to think through what does that look like? Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The ESV version says, so we should walk in them. Let's not just talk about it. Let's not just preach about it. Let's not just read about it. Let's not just get excited about missions conferences. Let's do something about it. So we'll now enter into our, our second scene. Now, I don't want you to think this is an abrupt pause. What I want you to look at this next story as we're kind of zooming out from what's taking place with the apostles. We're turning the lens and then zooming in over here on Herod. Okay, this isn't happening 10 years later, 10 years earlier, halfway around the world. This is going on in the area that Jesus and his disciples are. So we see the apostles sent out. We're zooming out. We're going to return there in a moment. We turn the lens and we focus in on Herod. So now we're going to turn to Luke 9, verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. We won't have enough time to do a historical background on Herod, but this is not Herod the Great, king. This is Herod Antipas, a tetrarch, one of four ruling in that area. He was specifically over Galilee and Perea. He's heard about what's going on. Jesus is making some noise. He's out, he's been proclaiming the kingdom of God, he's been casting out demons, and he's been healing people with all sorts of diseases. And news is spreading, and rightfully so, a man ruling in an area should be well aware of what's going on in his area. And we all know, because we've read ahead, this is all part of God's perfect plan and him sovereignly ruling and reigning over every step of the way on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. He's headed towards the cross, and part of that journey is people becoming aware. And the more people are becoming aware, the more divisiveness and frustration and anger and hatred is building up in the hearts of many. So not only does Herod hear, he's perplexed, rightfully so. Do you hear the three people that are mentioned or the three possibilities of who this Jesus is? John the Baptist, Elijah who's returned, or one of the prophets of old who's been risen from the dead. That would perplex anyone, I would imagine, but even more so for Herod because he himself is the one who had John the Baptist executed. Again, if you want more background on that, you can look at the gospel narrative of this same account in Mark 6. Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. A little hesitant about doing it, but he did it. He killed him. He had his head chopped off, brought in on a platter. So rightfully so, when Herod hears about people saying that this might be John the Baptist raised from the dead, he's perplexed. Again, we know because we can fast forward ahead and we've read the story, this is not John the Baptist raised from the dead. This is not Elijah who's come back and returned as prophesied in Malachi. This is not a prophet of old who's been risen from the dead. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and I won't steal Pastor Nick Rowland's thunder because that's where we're going to land next week. These three different people, the a prophet of old, John the Baptist, or Elijah, they're going to be mentioned again in next week's sermon, and then we're going to see them again on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is not any of these. He is far greater and better than all of these. And where I want to hone in for a moment, I just took a good bit of time addressing the believers in the room. 
about how we're to be sent out with power, purpose, provision. I want to take a moment to speak to those who might be gathered here today who might not know Christ as Lord and Savior. Look at what Herod says. John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought, emphasis on sought, to see him. He later gets the opportunity, we're going to read through that a little bit in Luke 23, but seeking and having a desire to learn more, to know more about Jesus is not what leads to salvation. It's surrender. In chapter 13, the Pharisees warn Jesus that this same Herod wants to kill him. In Luke 23, verses 8 through 11, I won't read it all. I'm going to read part of verse 8 and part of verse 11. Let me read this for you. Herod gets what he wishes. He sought to see him. It happens. In verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Fast forward a couple verses in verse 11. Here's his response. And Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Seeing is not believing, and having a desire to see a sign is not believing. And I would say that if there are any who have come today who are asking a similar type question, who is this Jesus? I'm excited to hear Pastor Nick Rumlet preach more on that next week about who he is, but he's the son of God, the savior of all those who would call upon him for salvation. I want to take a, a moment to tell you what he's done for you. Since the beginning of time, God had a perfect plan. He created man, man and woman. We know from Genesis that sin entered into the world, and due to that sin, we've been separated from God. God is holy. He is perfect. Sin cannot be in his presence. So originally, man was in right relationship with God the Father. Sin entered the world, and it is still here today, and we are separated from him. And God had a plan to send his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to live a perfect life and be a perfect sacrifice and die a perfect death and be raised from the dead that any who would confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God's raised him from the dead and don't just seek to learn and know and have a desire for a sign, but those that surrender their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, they'll be saved. And the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross washes those sins away. And then we are able to then come back into a right standing relationship with the Father through the Son, not by seeking, not by looking for signs, but by surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We know from God's word, even the demons believe and shudder. We see in all sorts of miracles in the New Testament that people see, but their hearts are hardened. Their eyes are blinded. Even the disciples don't quite get what's going on in the feeding of the 5,000 here in just a moment. It takes the Holy Spirit doing a work on people's hearts that only he can do. So remember, rewind to our last scene. When we're called to go and proclaim that is our job, to go and proclaim and to love on people and to share the good news of Jesus, to meet physical and spiritual needs. And then we leave the work of the Holy Spirit to draw those people to himself. We can't force someone into salvation. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if you have come here today and don't know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And we would love to have a conversation with you about that more afterwards. Answer that question, who is this Jesus? What has he done for me? Do I believe it? Will I surrender my life to him? It reminds me of a story, and then we'll move into our next scene. I served in South America in a small village, and there was this sweet little lady named Ma Yeti. 
And my Yeti came to the area in the village where I lived, and we had the opportunity to show the Jesus film one night. And we, we put up a sheet, and we were able to run a generator and show the, the Jesus film there in the jungle. And the next day, I can still remember sweet little my Yeti. We had a conversation. She came up to me. I said, my Yeti, I saw you at, uh, at, the, at the Jesus film last night. What did you think? And she was like, oh, Taylor. And again, it's in her native tongue. Taylor, it was so good. I had a smile on my face, continued to ask questions. Well, my Yeti, what did you think about the story of Jesus? Oh, it was also really good. And I was like, well, really good. What do you mean by that? I was like, do you believe what you saw? Do you believe in this Jesus and what he's done for you? Absolutely. And I'm just like, man, I've been living here for over a year now. How did I not know my Yeti was a Christian? And so I asked her, I was like, my Yeti, you're a believer? And she's, Taylor, no, I'm not a believer. She was like, don't you know the position in the village that I'm in? If I were to confess faith in Jesus Christ, surrender my life to him, I would lose that position. And so she was prizing herself and her needs and her wants over Christ's. It's not just about seeing and hearing and knowing a lot of stuff in the Bible and theological books and education at seminary for some of you who are in that season right now. It's about belief and surrender to Jesus Christ. And I encourage those of you who haven't to think over that question today. What am I going to do about this Jesus? Who is this man? What has he done for me? And then what is my response? And so now we'll enter into our third scene as we wrap up we have the feeding of the 5,000 one of two miracles recorded in all four gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John the other miracle Jesus's resurrection from the dead this obviously caught some people's attention all four gospel writers record this Matthew Mark Luke and John and every once in a while on occasion and I'll let you know when I do this I'm going to borrow a little bit from one of the other gospel narratives, specifically Mark a couple times, and then also we're going to look to John at the very end as we close. But let's read this together. Luke 9, 10 through 17. This is where we now resume back off of Herod, turn the lens back over to the apostles, and zoom back in. Here's what happened. They returned from this sent-out journey. Verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. I'm going to pause there really quickly. We don't get to hear how this goes down. I would have loved to have been there. I shared with the guys. I probably would pay money to have heard how this went down. We know that the sons of Zebedee, their mother, asked for her two sons to sit at the right hand and the left hand of, of, of the Father in heaven one day. Before Luke 9 is even over, the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. I can only imagine what this report sounded like. We don't have it, so we won't spend much time there. But they report back on what they had done. He gave them a command, they went, they're coming back, they're doing somewhat of a debrief. And then Jesus sees something in them, and then he says in verse 11, when the crowds, or I'm sorry, 10b, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. In Mark 6, 31 and 32, this is where I want to add a little bit to the narrative, and he, Jesus, said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. I add that in because when they return, Jesus either sees a weariness in them or he knows what's about to happen next. And he sees they need a moment to take a breath. 
Again, we could spend a lot of time here, a, a, a whole sermon on the importance of good gospel rhythms and gospel rests in our lives, but I'll leave it at that. We can't go 100 miles an hour all day, every day. We have to take opportunities to refill, to recharge, to be poured into so that we can effectively pour out for others and continue on with this mission that God has called us to. Jesus sees something in them on the return, a weariness perhaps, or he knows that they're going to need a little extra rest for what's about to take place around the corner, and they get away, not just to get away, get away for some intentional rest. And then let's finish on with the rest of the story. Verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. One more borrowing from Mark, Mark 6, 34. He didn't just see them and welcome them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what Jesus had been training them and showing them how to do along the way, preaching the kingdom of God, healing and casting out demons, he then called them out to go and do the same. They've now returned, and right away, Jesus jumps right back into discipling these guys. The very first opportunity that comes around, this large crowd comes, and instead of Jesus saying, time out, we're on a break, we need a little breather here, he welcomes them, has compassion on them, and he does exactly what he's been calling them to do. He teaches and he cures those who had need of healing. He continues to meet the needs of those people right in front of him. Brief pause. Remember Acts 1.8, your Jerusalem, your Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? There's an important aspect to ministering to those right in front of you. And then there's these short-term or mid-term or long-term missionary trips that we take that take some planning. They had one of those short-term, mid-term trips just a moment ago where they went out strategically. He gave them instructions on how to do it. This is a random happening. People just come before him. That happens to every one of us throughout the week, in our workplaces, in our dorm rooms, on our sports teams, in hospital settings, whatever the case may be. We have opportunities that might not be planned, which is why we always need to be ready to share our reason for the hope that we have, 1 Peter 3.15. This is an occurrence that happens, and Jesus obviously knew it was going to happen, and he wants to take an opportunity here to keep working on the hearts of his disciples. So let's keep reading. After he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, as it says in verse 11, and cured those who had need of healing. Verse 12, let's read to the end. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So upon their return, they do a debrief, they get away for some rest, a large crowd comes, Jesus has compassion, he teaches, he heals, and then what happens? These disciples, they're already ready to send them away. For whatever those reasons were, we see that they all of a sudden think it's important for them to go and instruct Jesus, hey, we're in a desolate place. It says that Jesus just took them to withdraw to that desolate place. Of course he knows that. It's getting late, Jesus. 
The day is coming to a close. These people, you need to send them away for provisions and, and lodging and food. We're in a desolate place. And I, I'm convinced and believe that Jesus had orchestrated this perfectly, as I just mentioned, wants to continue to work on their hearts. Remember this mission that he's called them to and us to? It's not just a short-term work. It's not just we're in it one day and then out of it another. We'll take a year or two off and then we'll return to it. He's wanting to do something, I believe, in the hearts of these people and remind them of their need to rely on him for the provisions to complete the task he's called them to. When they say send them away, he doesn't just say okay. He doesn't just perform the miracle. He doesn't enter into a ton of dialogue with them. He says, and I think this is really important, an area where I feel like the Lord was, is helping me have my eyes opened a little bit this week as to the great connection between the initial scene and this last one. He says, you feed them. Well, their response is, well, there's 5,000 men. In Matthew, we see there's even women and children as well. But there's a lot of people. Jesus, all we have is five loaves of bread and two fish. They can't give food to all of these people without leaning in on Jesus and relying on him for his provision. Soon, again, we remember heading to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed. He's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to enter into heaven. We're going to be given the gift of the Spirit. He's not always going to be around in bodily form for them much longer. He's using every opportunity to teach and remind them of the importance to lean in on him to complete this task. They can't do it apart from him. Now Jesus starts to give the instructions. Okay, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50. So they do it. Reminder of verse 6, obedience, simple obedience. I don't think they quite understand what's about to happen, but they listen. They tell him to sit down. They get in these groups of about 50, and then Jesus, in 15, 16, he takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven, to the Father, who he is dependent upon to complete the task he's been called to. Says a blessing over them, and then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Notice that it doesn't say here that the crowd just came up in a buffet line. Jesus gave what was needed. He just told them to feed the people. Now he's giving them what they need to do that. He broke the loaves, <clears throat> gave them to the disciples, and they set them before the crowd. And then in 17, they didn't just eat. They ate till they were satisfied. And there were 12 basketfuls left over. So as we enter into somewhat of a landing of the plane, so to speak, let's talk a little bit about what we can see in Luke 9 in this miracle. I will confess, as a young child growing up, typically just thought of, man, he's powerful and he can provide. I don't want us to leave here today just thinking, we've been called to go out to the nations, and God's going to provide everything that we want as we do it. This is not about simply bread alone. I'm going to close reading in John 6 in a moment where Jesus specifically speaks into this. This isn't about material, physical bread, simply. But yes, one point we can take away from this, I was helped and encouraged by one of the study notes this week, don't let the miracle overshadow the one who's performing it. If you want to write down some takeaways from the feeding of the 5,000, don't let the miracle overshadow the one who's performing it. Jesus has power. He's showing his deity in and through this miracle. And this is going to continue 
to cause people to, to hear more and to get more frustrated, and it's going to continue to lead him towards the cross. Undeniably, though, <clears throat> we can't say that this doesn't speak into the fact that he provides. Jesus is a provider. We see that all throughout Scripture. Daniel, protection in the lion's den. Abraham and Sarah, a child at an old age. We see provision after provision after provision throughout Scripture. We see that in the illustration I gave earlier about George Mueller. But again, please don't leave thinking that this is just about physical things. Every Christian around the world doesn't have a full stomach and a warm bed to sleep in, and a roof over their head. And this isn't to try to create an emotional response. I'm just trying to say that this isn't about simply getting physical things because we're Christians. This, I believe, is trying to really drive home the point that the Lord will be able to satisfy and provide for us completely. One day in heaven, spiritually, he'll be able to satisfy the hunger that we have. And now here on earth, in part, not quite fully yet, he provides what we need to accomplish what he's called us to. I think another point that we can write down is that we cannot finish this mission or complete the task apart from him. I know it was a short little verse there when he says, you feed them, and they basically say, we can't. This is all we got. And then he breaks the bread for them and provides for him. We can't get the gospel from here to the ends of the earth. There are still unreached people groups all over the world. I do believe not just me personally, I would imagine many here would agree that the number of unreached people groups out there right now, a lot of that doesn't just have to do with the fact that they're hard to reach, there's political turmoil, they're hard to reach places, they're hard to live in. A lot of it has to do because people aren't stepping up to the call to go to the nations. Again, not a, a strong arm technique to say you have to go overseas as a missionary for the rest of your life. But there are, according to the Joshua Project, over 17,000 people groups in the world. And over 7,000 of those 17,000 would be classified as unreached people groups. Either little or no access to the gospel. And we can look at the number of Christians here in America. And not just here in America. We can look at South Korea. We can look at Brazil. A lot of other countries doing a really good job of sending as well. We've been told through scripture to pray that the Lord of the harvest send workers into the harvest field. And I think a lot of these groups are still unreached because we aren't all collectively being a part of the Great Commission. We can't complete this task apart from Christ. And although we could spend a whole sermon on this, we won't. I want to at least say that there are some clear connections here in this gospel narrative that refer back to the Old Testament, Moses leading the Israelite people out of the wilderness and how God miraculously provides manna and quail for them. And they still grumble after that. But I think it's really cool here, and most commentators would agree that there are some direct correlations to the Old Testament, how Jesus is now the greater Moses. There's a, a large crowd, and they're in a wilderness setting, and he miraculously provides bread for them. And notice that they don't grumble, at least here in this moment. They're, they're satisfied provided for over and above and beyond. There's excess left over. And then one thing, I did put this at the bottom. I, I want to at least mention this. The Lord can do a lot with a little and simple obedience. I don't think that's the main point here. I was talking with a brother in the church this week about how hard it can be sometimes to do the things that we know we're called to do because we don't do them perfectly and we can't do them completely, whether that's serving and loving our spouse well or our children or it working in our vocation, and, and, and we talked about the fact how important it is to do the little things well. And the Lord can do a lot with a little and simple obedience. 
Sometimes young seminarians can get caught up in not just jumping into ministry and doing what God's initially called them to because everybody wants to be a John Piper or a well-known big name. Or young, young students with missionary zeal want to have a story like Jim Elliott. We don't need more John Pipers and Jim Elliott, so to speak. We need more faithful men and women and children within the church. More Eric's and, and more Ryan's and more Jess's and Jessica's and young Gianna's. And more tailors, and we could just continue to list. These aren't just random names. These are names of people in our church to continue to step up to the call that Jesus has placed on our lives to be a part of this mission that he has started and that he has brought us into. And as I mentioned earlier, to drive home the point that this is not simply about physical provisions, I want to read from John 6, some select verses between 30 and 51. If, if we're not fully convinced that this isn't just a simple miracle about food, listen to what Jesus says right after the feeding of the 5,000 in John's account. I'll let you know which verses I'm going to read because I won't read them all for the sake of time. But starting in John 6, verse 30. So they, the people, said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. In verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And we'll close with 47 through 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes and has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever.